Good morning, good morning. It's great to see all of you. Welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. So glad you're able to be with us this morning to worship. For all those joining us online, we welcome you as well. So happy you're able to join us. Just a couple of announcements and what's going on in the life of our body for all the youth parents. Just a continual reminder of our Disciple Now weekend in a few weeks to amplify February 23rd through 25th. All the information is on our website at gatewaybaptist.com, registration, all the information you need. If you have any questions, please come talk to me or Mandy Moody. Uh, we're excited about that weekend for our teenagers, um, so you can get all the information on the website. I would like to ask Alicia Jung to come up. There's an opportunity she's going to let us know about with Capitol Heights Middle School. Good morning, everyone. Um, as CJ said, I'm Alicia Jung, and... I've had the privilege of being able to come on Tuesday mornings, some with um, Seth and Megan and others who volunteer at Capitol Heights Middle School. That's a Bible study that they do, and um, I'm really just the mouthpiece here. I don't do much at all, but wanted to share an opportunity that Seth had been asked by the social worker if we would be willing to host and cater a Valentine's Day lunch for the teachers, um, and of course he said yes because we love to take any opportunity we can to love and serve um, this school that is just really an especially dark and broken place. Um, and so we want to share the love of Christ by providing a meal. So I have two ways that you can help with that. And one is if you want to contribute by buying a meal for a teacher or several meals, um, you can give online or just write in your memo um, for Hope's ministry that's helping our public education system. Hope's is the program that this Bible study runs under, um, that the meals are $7 for a teacher. So if you would like to just treat someone to lunch, that would be a great gift. Um, also, I have these super beautiful, bright index cards that I'm going to be, um, I passed out to one Sunday school class, but also just make available on Wednesday or next week, but we're trying to get these back by next week in order to have scripture encouragement go out with the meal so that a teacher could get um, food and spiritual food on Valentine's Day. This does not have to be complicated. You will not know the person you're writing to. There's no way you can know what they're struggling with. Just if you want to write a verse or a note that says, you know, Gateway Baptist Church is praying for you. Um, God loves you. You know, do not grow weary of doing good. Anything like that. Um, but hopefully one of these cards will make it to you. We've had kids make cards before, and it's fine if your kids want to write one, but I was hoping that these particularly would come from adults who could um, maybe just kind of speak in as, you know, a peer or form of encouragement. Lastly would just be that if you are interested in finding out more about this ministry, you can talk to Seth or anyone in the office, and they can connect you. Um, there's a Thursday afternoon tutoring program, and Julia is always trying to get meal signups for that. So there's lots of tangible ways if you have an interest in serving. It's um, a really high need area of our community, and that is all. Thank you, Alicia. Appreciate that. One last thing we would like to recognize this morning and celebrate, Mr. John Ledford, who just graduated from Phase One of Fisher's Farm. <laughs> 
We praise God for his grace with you, John. John just started a new job at a local lumber company. He's going to be in phase two, but we're just so excited what God's been doing in your life. We're so appreciative you're part of our family here. And we'll be continuing to pray for you as the Lord continues to work in your life. Well, let's stand before the Lord as we prepare our hearts to sing and worship him through song. I'm going to start us off by reading a passage from Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth, and he makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. Let's worship him this morning. Yeah. 
Romans 8, 28 through 39, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who, call, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he, he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are so thankful today, God, to proclaim this message in worship of you, that we are yours, we are not our own. And God, thank you for the promises of this, that nothing can separate us from and as we pray and as we intercede for others, Lord, we walk in the truth that we are your children. We are your sons and daughters. You called us friends because of your gift, because what you have given to us. You have declared that we are yours. That is the core of our identity. That is who we are. So, Lord, I pray that we would be able to reflect on that this week. And, Lord, as we bring our prayer requests, not to you, not just today, but any day, that we approach you as sons and daughters. God, we love you, and we're so grateful for that gift. Lord, we pray for the military families here at Gateway, and, God, for the folks especially who are, are getting ready to leave soon. Lord, we pray for uh, just a sense of your presence and grace that you go before them, that they are going in places that you have set for them to go that you would provide community, a community of faith for them where they can continue to honor and glorify you together. Lord, we pray for our neighbors down the road at Grace Presbyterian and their new pastor, Ryan Doyle. God, thank you for bringing Ryan to this church. And we pray that as he's uh, preaching his first sermon today and this is his first Sunday, uh, God, that you would just uh, give a spirit of welcome there for him and that uh, it just that it would be a great and celebratory moment for that church. Lord, we have, you call us to pray for our leaders, and so we want to pray for President Biden and our congressional leaders in the nation. Lord, we know it is a daunting task with so many different things and so many different ways that they can be pulled. And we ask that you, God, would glorify yourself in our nation and that you would lead them to follow you and to pursue what is right and good uh, and not always just what is most convenient or most, what they think is most helpful. We pray uh, for Taylor and Sarah Fox. We're so grateful for them and for their extended family, uh, God. And we're, we're grateful for the work that they're doing in Strasburg. Uh, Lord, in a dark place where so many are unbelievable.
neighbors. We pray that you would give them a sense of your presence there, that they would celebrate that they are a light in the darkness. And as discouraging as it can be sometimes, that they would know that you have called them to be there and that they are a light shining in a dark place and that they can depend on you for that. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give back to you what you've given to us in an act of worship. So for all the offerings that we've given um, today and online and, and throughout the week, God, that we would consider that nothing is ours. And but if you call us to give back to you, that it isn't an act of worship. And Lord, do with that what you will in your kingdom. And finally, for Grady, God, thank you for him and for his leadership. And we pray for him as he preaches this morning. Thank you for uh, all the ways that you've let this sermon dwell in him this week. And as he shares this morning, I pray that you would speak through him and that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to tell us. We lift all of this in the, Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The fourth graders, you're dismissed to the kids' worship. The fourth graders would like to go to kids' worship here to dismissed. We have Mr. Tom and Ms. Jennifer this morning. It's good to see you on a rainy morning. I'm glad we are all here to sing the Lord's praise together and pray together and study God's word together this morning. So I want you to find Genesis chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, if you're visiting with us, we're taking a year to study the first 11 chapters of Genesis to see these foundations of our faith. And we're in Genesis chapter 3. Now over the last three weeks, we've been seeing God's judgment on sin. We've been seeing how God has responded to the first sins in the world. And we've seen the overarching theme of these weeks, the life's blessings have become challenging because of sin, because of judgments, because of the curse. Life's blessings have become challenging. We've seen this with childbirth. We've seen this with child rearing. We've seen this with discipling the next generation. We've seen this with marriage. We've seen this in relationships. We've seen this in work and the desire to provide for ourselves and our families. These, all these blessings are still there, but they're now challenging because of sin and judgment and the curse. Now, last week we focused on the last part of the judgments, and that's where the blessing of physical life itself now becomes challenging. And we saw last week the reality that everyone will now face death. As we saw in Genesis, it says, to dust you shall return. And that will be said of every single person here and every single person in the world. Now, in light of all that, I want to ask you a question. If you were Adam and Eve, how would you respond to those, those judgments that God has just made? If you're the one hearing that directly from the mouth of God, how would you respond? You knew you sinned. You knew you've been called by a holy God. You've been hiding, but God has been chasing after you and drew you out. You got defensive and you blamed one another. You blamed others for your sin. And then God brings these terrifying judgments on you and on all humanity, humanity after you. And you realize that for thousands of years, you will now be known for your sin. You will now be known for how death entered the world through you. What would you say next? What would you do next? Would you respond in anger to God for making life hard? Would you be angry but directed at other people? Would you go silent and get bitter? Would you cry and try to hide? Would you despair and dive into a deep depression? What would you do if you had just heard the reality of how your sin had impacted all the world? But also, what would you expect God to do next? If you're Adam and Eve and you don't know the rest of the story and God has just pronounced these terrifying judgments and the curses, what would you expect God to do next? Would you expect him to strike you dead right then and there? Would you expect some additional terrifying punishment to come? What do you think God would do? I ask that because that's where we go next with Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And in these verses, we see what Adam says next and what God does next. We see what follows, these terrifying judgments that come. 
Now, for many of us, we've read Genesis 3 many, many times, and we're familiar with these verses, and we can quickly fly over these verses. These are short verses. They're just 32 words in our English. And if we're honest, they sound a little bit choppy here. They sound a little bit disjointed after this long section of judgment. Then come these two things that happen. It almost feels like just some random facts stuck in there to kind of tie a nice bow over the story. Friends, Genesis 3, 20 and 21, I believe, are some of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture. Because here in these two verses, we find the first words of humanity after receiving the judgment from God. And we find the first action of God after bringing these terrifying judgments. So as we look at Genesis 3, 20 and 21 this morning, we'll be looking for what does Adam say in response to all that God has said. And what does God do for Adam and Eve in following up with the judgments that have come? So let's look at Genesis 3, 20 and 21. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. Genesis 3, 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, what a treasure it is that we don't have to hunt to find you. That you have clearly shown us who you are. And Lord, even here in these first chapters of Genesis, you've shown us so much that makes sense of the struggles of the world that we're in. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would be living and active. That, Lord, your word would pierce into each of our hearts. And, Lord, you would do what only you can do through the work of your Holy Spirit. You would take your word and you would use it to convict us where we need conviction to strengthen our faith, where we need it strengthened to encourage us, where we need encouragement. Lord, would you use your word to turn our eyes to you, to see the glories of you and of your grace. Would you do it this morning for your glory, for the good of your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, friends, these verses are very profound, so I want to tell you up front the truth I want you to see from these verses, then we'll unpack it together. But here's the truth I want you to see from these two verses this morning. It's this, friends. God's grace covers our sin and gives us the, the faith to believe His Word is true. If you want to summary these two verses, simply this. It's all about God's grace. That God's grace covers our sin, our many sins, and He gives us the faith to believe that His Word is true. And friends, these verses are astounding because here in Genesis 3, 20 and 21, you see grace and you see faith side by side for the first time in Scripture. And that will continue through the rest of Scripture as a major three thing that God gives grace. And in response to his grace, people respond to him in faith. And we will see that on full display this morning, that God's grace covers our sin and gives us the faith to believe that his word is true. So kind of two parts of... What we see in this idea there in these two verses, one is what God does and one is how man responds. So let's start first with the second verse of our text. Let's focus in first on what God does. So what does God do immediately after the judgments? This is flowing straight after all the, the curses that we saw the last few weeks. What does God do next? Because he shows grace here. He shows an unbelievable grace to Adam and Eve. Now let me remind us what we're talking about, especially if you're new to Gateway. We use the word grace a lot. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is when we receive what we do not deserve, what we've not earned, what we've not merited. It's when God in his kindness gives to wretched sinners like us things that we do not deserve. I think about Adam and Eve. If we think through what we've already seen through Genesis 3, Adam and Eve deserve nothing but punishment. Adam and Eve deserve nothing but death and judgment. They deserve nothing good from God. God could have struck Adam and Eve dead right then, and he would have been just and good and right. God could have left them on their own and been like, you rebelled against me. You're on your own. Go navigate that world. I'm done with you. And he would have been good and just and right. But instead here, God shows his grace. 
His undeserved favor, his kindness to these sinners, giving them what they do not deserve. Look back at verse 21 and look at what God does for them. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. For instance, verse is profound. So before we talk about what they received, notice two things about this. First of all, realize the need that they had. Look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. In Genesis 3, 7, this is when they first become aware of their sin. The eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So after Adam and Eve sinned, they feel shame for their sin. They knew that they had sinned. And they knew that their nakedness could not continue because the innocence was gone. The perfection was gone. And so they made these feeble attempts at clothing by sewing leaves together. So there was a need that they had, and God knows they need something better, so God provides something better for them here in verse 21. Go back to verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So God clothed them. But second of all, realize what they witnessed for this to happen. A garment of skin here is a skin that comes from an animal. This is an animal skin, and the only way to get an animal skin is to kill the animal, and that's exactly what God does in this text. Now, friends, there's no indication here that God withdraws and does this in secret behind a bush so Adam and Eve don't have to witness this. Everything up to this point has been God dealing directly with his people. He's pursued them in the garden and drawn them out. His presence has been right there with them, speaking to them face to face as he brings the judgments on sin. There's nothing in this text, right? There's an immediacy here. There's no indication that God says, Hey, I'm going to do something. Don't look at this. This is going to be gross. I believe he did this right. Before their eyes. That God brings an innocent animal, about more than one, if you're going to make clothes for two adult humans. God brings innocent animals before them, and he slaughters the animals before Adam and Eve. The blood flows out of the animals, and the life departs. Now for us, we kind of can just pass on to that, but think about the horror of this for Adam and Eve. There's never been death in the world up until this point. They've, been, they've heard from God that they said there will be death, but they've never seen death. They've never experienced death. They've never witnessed death. They weren't hunters. Animals for food wouldn't come until after the flood. So they've never seen death before. I can only imagine at this point, they are literally trembling and gasping, going, this is what death is. As they look at lifeless corpses of animals in front of the ground, on the ground in front of them. And then God takes the lifeless corpse and he skins it. That's not a pretty sight. It's bloody and that's messy. And he takes the skins and he fashions them into the shape of clothes. In fact, in our verse here in verse 21, when it says that God made for Adam and Eve, this word made is the same Hebrew word you see in creation. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's the exact same word now that we have back in verse 21, God made. So with the same intentionality, he formed woman. The way, same intentionality, he formed man. The same intentionality, he formed all things in creation. He now crafts together clothes to cover his people. Don't miss the imagery of this, friends. God puts blood-bought clothes on his image bearers in the garden, though they deserve nothing but punishment from him. Now, why would God do this? There's two reasons why God would do this for them. First of all, there was an immediate need that they had. They needed protection. They needed clothing. Now, I can only try to imagine covering ourselves with leaves. I can imagine that would give very little protection from the elements on a day like this. I can imagine there's not a lot of protection from thorns and poison ivy. It probably doesn't feel great. And if we're honest, it's probably not very modest either. So God makes something 
far better than they could make. Back to verse 21, that God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes. Where garments means tunics. These are things that would probably, scholars say, go to at least their knees, possibly even down to their ankles. It would be much more significant, much more sturdy than any type of leaves they've tried to sew together. God gives them thick, sturdy clothes to protect them, and they're going to need it. Because what we're going to come to next week, God's going to kick them out of the garden. And they're now going to be in a world where there are thorns, where there is poison ivy, where bugs now bite and where animals now attack. God knows the need that they have, and so God graciously provides for them what they're going to need to navigate this broken world. I want you to notice something here. God does this without them asking for it. They don't even notice that they have a need on this. They're not even aware of what's still to come. God in His sovereign initiative and His sovereign grace gives them what they don't even know to ask for. They're not even aware probably how pitiful their attempts are. They don't know the challenges they're faced, but God does, so God gives them what they need. So why would God slaughter the first animals, bring the first death to make clothes for them? Because God is caring for the needs of His people. Even though they sinned against Him, God still cares for the good of His people. God still cares for the sinners who were His image bearers and still are His image bearers. So He's meeting their needs in His grace. But God does this for a second reason, friends. And that's to point them to a greater reality. Here God gives the first picture in the Bible, the first visual aid of how He is going to deal with sin and shame and guilt. And here God reveals that He is willing to let something innocent die and shed His blood to cover the guilt of His image bearers, of His people. Now remember what God had promised in the judgments. Go back to Genesis 3.15. When God speaks to the serpent, He speaks to Satan. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This is a this is the first gospel in the scriptures pointing us to when Christ would come, that one of Adam and Eve's descendants would be the Messiah, the promised Redeemer who would ultimately crush Satan. And here now in Genesis 3, we begin to see how the promised Redeemer will crush Satan, that he would be sacrificed as the innocent lamb to defeat sin and to defeat death. Now throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God keeps building on this image of the necessity of a blood sacrifice to cover sin. You see it in the Passover when people all throughout the land would slaughter an innocent lamb and put the blood on their doorpost to, so the angel of death would pass over. They could be spared the wrath of God. As the Jewish people continued to celebrate the Passover in the years that followed, they were remembering how the blood covering protected them. You see it in the sacrificial system all throughout the Old Testament. As you read through Leviticus and other books and you see the sacrifice and how the blood flowed in the tabernacle, how the blood flowed in the temple. There were all these images of blood sacrifices that were necessary for the covering of sin. God is showing picture after picture after picture, starting here in Genesis 3 of what it would take to deal with the sin of his people. And ultimately he's pointing us to what Isaiah would prophesy. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 11. This is what this first picture in Genesis 3 is pointing to. Surely he, this is the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have streamed and stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears aside. So he opened not. 
his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. We see the first glimpse of what Isaiah prophesied, of what we know happened with Christ all the way back here in Genesis 3. Now, did Adam and Eve fully understand that image? Of course not, friends. The Bible gives us what's called progressive revelation. But this was the first, and it builds throughout the Passover. It builds through the sacrificial system. It builds through these prophecies to what we now see on the other side of the cross as the fullness of what God had revealed. And though they didn't fully understand that, it was a symbol for them to begin to see how God was willing to deal with their guilt, with their sin, through a sacrifice done in their place. So what does God do after the judgments? He shows unmerited grace. He sacrifices animals to provide for his people's need, but to ultimately begin to point them to the deeper truth of how their redemption is possible, how, how, the, how Satan will be crushed by the Redeemer. But God's grace is not only evident in these external actions God does. God's grace is also evident in how Adam and Eve respond to the judgments. And I want you to see their response as well. So think back to the opening question I asked you. If you have been Adam and Eve, and God has just spoken all these terrifying judgments of pain and childbirth and conflict and marriage and toil and hard work and strife and life, and you've heard all these things, ultimately how you'd return to dust. If that's what you had just heard, how would you respond? The first words out of Adam's mouth after hearing that is verse 20. Go back to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. What in the world? Like, this it feels so disconnected. Like, Adam, what are you doing? You just heard this terrifying judgment of God, and now you're renaming your wife here. What in the world is this all about? Now, realize before this point, she had not been called Eve. We've called her Adam and Eve for clarity on the recent weeks. But at this point, she's just been called woman. Genesis 2, 22 and 23, when you see her creation. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it to a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So up until this point, Eve was just woman. It was a name that emphasized her origin, her source, how she had come from the man. We go back to verse 20. Adam now gives her a new name. The man called his wife's name Eve. Now what's he doing here? Woman came, pointed back to her source, her origin. Eve now points to her destiny, to her future. You see, Eve is a word in the Hebrew that means life, living life giver. So this would be the equivalent, guys, if you're married, you wake up in the morning and you look at your wife and you say, good morning, life. You're a beautiful life giver today. Like that's basically what Adam is doing. He's taking this play on words and he's calling and he's renaming his wife from woman to life, life giver living. Why in the world would he do that? Because this is stunning here. Again, what was the very previous verse? Go back to the verse of 19, what's right before Adam does this. Last few phrases of that. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he's just thinking about death, and the consequence of sin is death, and the first words out of his mouth, verse 20, the man called his wife's name, life, life-giving, living. What in the world is he doing here, friends? Why would he say that? Well, we're told here, look at the rest of verse 20, because, why does he name her life, life-giving, living? Because she was the mother of all living. 
It means that from her, all the peoples of the world would come. The generations would follow from her. And the tense that is spoken here is a perfect tense that means certainty. This is as good as done. Adam is saying, it is with certainty that Eve, you are the life giver of all the generations to follow, including the promised redeemer that we're now hoping for. Now, how could Adam say this? And don't miss this, friends. He can say it's because he's now believing the word of God. The word of God, he was just doubting a few verses earlier in Genesis 3. Did God really say it? He began to have doubt of God's word. He is now believing the word of God that he had previously doubted. He now remembers the command God gave them. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 20, and God blessed them and God said to them, here's the word of God that Adam heard directly. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So he remembers that God said God's will was for Adam and Eve to have children and to begin to fill the earth. Not just with physical descendants, but with descendants who would be taught the word and who would love God. So when he now calls his wife life, life-giving, living, he is showing faith that they are going to now obey God. That though there will be pain because of the judgments of sin, they're still going to pursue obedience to the will of God. He's showing faith in God's word. But even more than that, he's remembering what God had told Satan. He was there when he heard the curse on Satan. Well, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. We saw it a minute ago. The word God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. Adam began to understand that there was some type of prophecy here that one of his offspring would be the one who would crush and defeat Satan who had destroyed so much. So when Adam renames his wife Eve, life, life-giving, living, this is a declaration of faith that he is now believing the word of God. And friends, this is a massive change for Adam. Remember, God had been pursuing Adam for repentance. He had doubted God's word. He had believed the lies of Satan. And so God had been pursuing him. But what did Adam do? He was hiding. Genesis 3, 9 and 10. You remember this from some weeks ago. The Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And then verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So Adam's first response to his sin was, I'm going to hide. Then when God draws him out so more, what does he do? Genesis 3.12, he blames his wife. This is the man said, the woman who you gave to him be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So he hides, he blames. Now that's the last thing you hear from Adam till our verse this morning. The last words that the Bible reports Adam spoke was, it's her fault. God brings the judgments, and what's the next word out of Adam's mouth after it's her fault? Go back to verse 20. The man called his wife's name life, life-giving, living Eve, because she was the mother of all living. What changed here, friends? God pursued Adam. God pursued Adam, giving him grace, bringing him to a place of repentance. It's the saving and transforming grace we talk about so much. And so somewhere, friends, between verses 14 and verse 20, Adam went from death to life. Adam went from unbelief to belief. Adam went from living for himself to living for God. He went somewhere between verses 14 and 20. He went from doubting God's word to now embracing the truthfulness and believing God's word. And so these first words after the curse show us that God has given to Adam faith to now believe in his promises, to now believe in the word of God. I think about these two verses together and the significance of this. Verse 20 the man called his wife's, Eve, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam is responding in faith. 
But what's he responding in faith to? He's responding in faith to the grace of God that has been chasing him all this time. And ultimately the grace of God that is now going to cover sin in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now these two verses go side by side, not in a disjointed way, but it's the first beautiful picture in Scripture of saving grace and faith going hand in hand. It's a picture for us of our lives, friends. Because like Adam and Eve, you and I sin every day. Just like Adam and Eve, we rebel against God's will. We fail to believe His Word, just like they do. Every day, you and I, when we sin, we're choosing to not believe what God has said is good and right. You and I, like Adam and Eve, will doubt God's goodness. We will doubt God's trustworthiness. We will doubt God's will and doubt God's plan, just like they did. That's why you know the verse well. Romans 3.23 tells us of every single one of us, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friends, if we're honest, too often we're like Adam and Eve. We know we've sinned, and so we do what Adam did. We hide. We run from God. We quit praying. We quit reading our Bible. We withdraw from church. We don't want to be around other believers. We hide our sin. We hide from God. Or we do what Adam and Eve did. We try to blame others. Satan made me do it. My wife made me do it. That person made me do it. We go back and forth with the blame game. And then we do, honestly, what Adam and Eve did. We try to hide our shame. We feel our sin. We feel the weight of it. We know we've offended God, and so we now try to hide our shame. Now, they dealt with their sin and shame by trying to sew fig leaves together. I've not seen any of you come to church covered in fig leaves trying to hide your sin and shame, but we do the same thing. Our fig leaves are our good works. We try to do good things after we've sinned to appease our conscience, to help others like us, to try to make things better for the wrong that we have done. As I was reading this week, one of the authors I enjoy on Genesis, his name is James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, and it just made me stop and think. He said, the outward acts of religion without Christ are fig leaves. The outward acts of our religion without Christ are fig leaves. He goes on to say, but someone says, I have worked hard at self-reformation. I used to be a drunk and I shook the habit of drink and now I have a good job and, God says, fig leaves. But I read my Bible every day and I go to church on Sundays and I try to say hello to the person sitting next to me. God says, fig leaves. But I give to the different funds, fig leaves. I give blood, fig leaves. I, 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 fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves, says God. These are all fig leaves. None of them deal adequately with sin. And friends, the reality is in all of our life, it may look different, but we have our own fig leaves. But we have sinned against God, and instead of us running to God in repentance and faith, we are trying to cover our sin and shame on our own, just like Adam and Eve did. So what deals adequately with sin? Again, this is the beautiful picture of Genesis 3, 20 and 21. Only God can. We can't deal with our own sin. Only God can. Only God in His grace can provide a sacrifice to cover our sin. We'll never atone for our own sin. Only Jesus can. That's why I love what John the Baptist says of Jesus in John 1, 29. John 1, 20. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Again, here's that sacrificial image that all the Old Testament images are pointed to. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does he take away our sin? He takes away our sin by dying in our place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so Genesis 3, 20 and 21 reminds us that God has to do the work. God has to give the grace. Just like in the garden, he initiated it. It's his sovereign grace, and it is for us as well. So what do we do? Nothing except like Adam and Eve did. We believe. We believe the Word of God. We have faith in the Word of God and in the character of God. Like Adam and Eve, they believe the Word of God and have faith. That's what we are called to do. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So let's try to bring all that back together, back to our main idea for the morning, friends. God's grace covers all of our sin 
and gives us the faith to believe his word is true. Genesis 3.20.21 is a beautiful picture of God giving grace to Adam to take him from unbelief to belief. But I want you to think about something here. Adam had only a few words of revelation. He had just these few verses recorded for us of what God had said and was simply, you're going to have to be fruitful and multiply and he will crush the enemy's head. With that revelation, Adam had faith to believe in God. Now that begs a question for us, friends, because we now have the totality, the completeness of God's revelation that Adam did not have. We have so much more than Adam had. Yes, we have the words Adam heard, but we have the rest of his Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus. We have all those Old Testament images. You read the Old Testament images of these sacrifices that pointed to the Messiah who would come. We have the gospel and Christ miracles that show us his life. We have his teachings that are profound. And we have his claims to be the Messiah, the promised one who would redeem us from our sins. We have Acts and we see the early church growing. All that God had prophesied with the birth of the church. We have all the letters in the New Testament, the epistles that tell us who Jesus is and take us deeper into the character and nature of God and to show us what faith looks like. And then we even have Revelation, the end of the story, where God has told us how all things will come to a culmination, how Jesus will return. We have it all and we have it in writing. We're not bound to the oral tradition. We have an alphabet and we have it printed in our language and on our phones and our Bibles here and our Bibles at home. And we can listen to it on the radio. We, can, we have it everywhere. We have the totality of God's revelation to people in our hands. So that presses the question to us that it pressed to Adam, do we believe? Adam believed with two basic pieces of revelation. We have the totality of God's revelation, so do we believe, friends? So this morning I want to ask us all the question, do we believe that we are sinners? Like Adam, that we have sinned against God and rebelled against him and chosen our way instead of his. And basically we've all shaken our fist at God saying, no, not your way, God. But mine. Do we really believe that we can do nothing to deal with our own sin? So many of us are sowing fig leaves in different ways, trying to deal with our sin, appease our consciences, and those will never. Do we really believe I can bring nothing to God that will make Him accept me? There's nothing that I can do to deal with my sin. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus is God? That He came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law that you and I break every single day? Do we really believe that Jesus willfully and joyfully came and died in our place, taking the wrath of God? Do we really believe that Jesus rose again, defeating death, conquering death, giving life so we can have life eternal? And do we really believe that we have eternal life waiting for us? To Back to verse 19, when dust we shall return, do we really believe when that day comes that we will be with him forever because he has dealt with our sin through a blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God himself? Friends, if you believe in those things that were foreshadowed and pointed to in Genesis 3, rejoice. You have the full revelation of God and everything you need. And if you believe those glorious truths, God has given it to you in faith, just like he gave Adam faith a little bit that Adam was told. If that's you, rejoice and ask God to grow that faith. None of us have fully arrived. Ask God to grow your understanding. Ask God to fill your heart with thankfulness for this amazing grace that was pointed to all the way back in Genesis 3. But friends, in a room this size, I'm very conscious of the fact that not all of you really believe those things. Whether you're a child or an adult, there's many who, again, sow the fig leaves, trusting in goodness, trusting in trying to do the church, the religious things. And if you look at that, okay, this is really not me. I don't have this type of faith. Ask God to give you that grace. Ask God to transform you. And just like he took Adam, ask God to take you from unbelief to belief, from death to life, from doubting the word of God to believing the word of God, from doubting the character of God to trusting the character of God. Friends, God took Adam from death to life. Has he done that for you? Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for even what seems like kind of two random verses in Genesis 3. You've already given us a picture of the gospel at the very beginning. How you and your grace pursue sinners like us who are hiding from you and blaming others and living in our sin. How you've chased us and pursued us and given us grace. Grace to believe and grace to have faith. And even as we see here, we see Adam's simple response of these declarations of faith that God, your word is true. So Lord, for these many brothers and sisters who are here who have this type of faith, who know that they've been brought from death to life, would you this morning fill their heart with just profound thankfulness that you pursued them when they were not pursuing you, that you turned them to you when they were just running their own race. God, would you fill their hearts with a sense of awe and wonder that you have chosen them, that you have poured out your grace on their life. And I pray all this week that their hearts would just overflow, that I am a child of God, and they would see and celebrate and ponder your grace. And Lord, for those who are in this room who have never repented of their sins, who have never put their faith and trust in you, God, would you this day give them that saving grace? Would you today convict them of their need of a Savior? Would you today show them the ways they're like Adam and Eve, sowing fig leaves and trying self-righteousness or whatever? If they're running from you, I pray that you would pursue them just like you did Adam and Eve. If they're blaming others for their sin, I pray you would bring them to conviction and brokenness to see as their own sin, their own heart's desire. And Lord, would you chase them and grab them today before this day is over? And Lord, for all of us, I pray that as we think back on these truths of Jesus, that you would just let us see your glory. You let us see your greatness and your power and your sovereignty, knowing that you are on your throne. So Lord, we just rejoice in your grace and thank you for it this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a closing song this morning, and it's the song, Jesus Paid It All. So you think about that first sacrifice in the garden, pointing to Jesus. Think about the words that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Let's let the image of Genesis 3 lead us to worship our Savior.
Thank you. 